This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is So Dead Podcast. Happy True Crime Tuesday, Deadheads. Today's episode is going to be a little different from what I've been doing lately. Back when there were two hosts of this here podcast, we would do two stories each episode, not just one like I've been doing lately. And then we would talk about things and life and tacos. So I could cover smaller, more obscure stories sometimes because there was all this other stuff to fill the space. But now it is a lot more difficult to fill all that time on my own as I'm finding. So I've been doing bigger stories and really diving deep into them. And I do love doing that. It makes me feel like like a reporter, even though I'm not. But there are so many crazy stories out there that we're missing out on because they're just not long enough to support an entire episode. So today I'm going to tell you guys a few stories, some totally random, long forgotten stories about murderesses in Michigan. I don't know why we don't use the term murderess anymore. I can't say it very well, but I like it. I love it when I find an old article and the headline is just murderous with an exclamation point. It's so dramatic and so incredible. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Anyway, let's get started. Our first story takes us way back to 1881. And let me tell you, for a story that only exists in 140-year-old newspapers, I was able to find a surprising amount of dirt on this one. This one's going to hop, skip, and jump all over Michigan, but it starts in the city of Greenville, a suburb of Grand Rapids. Greenville is best known as the birthplace of our beloved Meyer. If you're not from Michigan, that might not make any sense to you, but Meyer is our lifeblood. It is a chain of grocery stores. Really, the, I mean, you can buy everything there. It's, it's like, a, like a super Walmart, only it's not Walmart. It's Meyer. They have things from a lot of local retailers, produce, bakery, clothes, movies, toys, furniture, everything. I love it, and I don't know how people live without it. Anyway, founder Hendrik Meyer immigrated to Greenville from the Netherlands in the early 1900s. In 1934, he opened his first grocery store in Greenville. His lone employee was his 14-year-old son, Frederick Meyer, who went on to expand the business into the Midwestern behemoth it is today. Today, Greenville is a farming town with a population of around 9,000 people. But back in the 1800s, pre-Meyer, it was a very different place. Greenville was founded in 1844 by a man named John Green, a lumberer who built a sawmill in the middle of a forest and then built a city around it. By the 1870s, when our fuckery begins, there were about 3,000 people living in Greenville, many of them Danish immigrants. Among them was successful lumberer Ezra Barnard from New York, his wife Nettie, and their son Freddie. Nettie and Freddie, that's so cute. The Barnards were a handsome young couple who were well-known and well-liked in the community. They were wealthy, which always helps when it comes to making friends, and Nettie was described as a kind, good-hearted woman. They were devout members of their local Baptist church, which is where all the drama begins. Drama? In a church? I simply don't believe it. (laughs) 
The pastor of Greenville's Baptist Church was an elderly man by the name of Reverend Curtis. By day, Reverend Curtis was a man of the cloth who doted on his ailing wife, Charlotte, who was suffering from arthritis, heart problems, and the beginning stages of dementia. By night, Reverend Curtis raced horses, gambled, and was said to be a little too attentive to his female parishioners, especially the pretty ones. And Nettie Barnard was one of the pretty ones. Nettie adored her pastor, and the two of them spent a lot of time together, alone. They were often seen walking about town, arm in arm, at night, out of the reach of streetlights. Did they even have streetlights in the 1800s? Maybe they were just like street torches. Who knows? So this is when rumors of an affair between the two first began, because what else is there to do at a Baptist church in the 1800s besides gossip? I mean, it's what they were there for, right? Uh, Still, the Curtises were this frail, elderly couple in their late 60s, which I get, don't. 60's not that old today, but 60 was fucking old in the 1800s, okay? What was the life expectancy? 22. So these guys are in their late 60s, early 70s, and the Barnards were a young, attractive couple in their late 20s, early 30s. Doesn't make a lot of sense for there to be an affair there, right? here's a direct quote from an 1881 news article because I could not read this and not pass it along. And I know I've said this before, but I fucking love the way they wrote news articles in the 1800s. Pastor Curtis was a white-haired, withered, and bloodless old man, while Mrs. Barnard was a young, healthy, well-rounded, full-blooded woman. Her husband was a strong, thorough man, a prosperous lumberman, A stranger seeing them today would say, there's a well-mated couple. All this aside, the heart wants what it wants, I suppose. So there are these rumors, and the reverend's wife, Charlotte, is hella jealous. This was not the first time that there had been talk about town of her husband being inappropriate with other women, but it would be the last. One day, Nettie made plans to go boating with her young son, Freddie, and a friend. The friend backed out at the last minute, so Nettie decided to take Freddie out on the boat by herself. Cue the ever-helpful Reverend Curtis, who offered to join the Barnards and do the rowing so that Nettie didn't have to. So the three of them set out for a day of boating, and after a few hours, Freddie started not feeling well, and he asked if he could go back. Like any good mother, Nettie put her wants before her son's needs, and she had the Reverend pull the boat to the nearest shore and let Freddie out. So poor Freddie had to walk all the way home by himself, sick, while his mother and the good reverend continued their outing. The two were gone for hours. They didn't return until it was dark. So yeah, it's not a good look at all. The reverend's wife was so upset that she told Nettie, take your tea, although you don't deserve it. (laughs) Sick burn, Charlotte. Sick burn. It wasn't long after this indiscretion that they were relocating to Lapeer, another small lumber town about 100 miles away, clear on the other side of the state, kind of like at the base of the thumb, I guess. And Miss Nettie Barnard was simply crushed. One night, she visited the reverend at his barn. She told him that she could not bear to have him go away, and she pleaded with him to stay. Rumor had it, the reverend's wife watched this entire exchange from the window of her house. 
So the next day, when Nettie visited the Curtis home with a goodbye cake to wish them well, she was not received kindly by Charlotte. Charlotte called her a low, vulgar woman and told her to leave the house and never return. The Curtises left Greenville. They moved to Lapeer. Reverend Curtis started preaching at the Baptist church there. Charlotte Curtis got to start over in her role as the pastor's wife with no gossip or rumors about her husband's shady behavior. And the Barnards, naturally, they followed the Curtises across the state to Lapeer. Why Nettie thought this was a good plan, I will never understand. And how she got her husband to go along with it, who knows. But sure as shit, the Barnards showed up in the pier and joined Reverend Curtis's church there. Needless to say, Charlotte was furious. She said something to the effect of, Bitch, I will ruin you, although much more 1880s preacher wife. And then she set out to do exactly that. The entire church shunned Nettie Barnard. The reverend would not so much as look at her. As it turns out, following your not-so-secret lover across the state when the whole reason he left was to get away from you isn't the best of ideas. So I'm going to take a pause because I want you guys to make your desses. I want you guys to make your guesses. I don't know what a des is, but I'd prefer that you guess. Who dies in this here love triangle? Make your predictions now because murder is coming right up. So things are not going well for Nettie Barnard in Lapeer at all. And all of this vengeance and hatred, although understandable, is taking a toll on Charlotte Curtis's health. Ezra Barnard has been made a cuckold by an old gross clergyman, and Reverend Curtis's sins are finally catching up with him. January 17th, 1881 was a Sunday, which of course means church. Reverend and Mrs. Curtis had dinner together, and then he walked the couple of blocks to the church for the Sunday evening service while she stayed home to rest. She was sitting in her rocking chair around 7 p.m. when the front door burst open. No knock, no ringing of the doorbell, just flew open. When 67-year-old Charlotte saw 32-year-old Nettie standing in the doorway, she demanded that she leave. But Nettie entered the house and closed the door behind her. Again, Charlotte told her to leave, to which Nettie replied, You have wronged me, and I will have revenge. What happened next sounds like a scene from a movie. Definitely a Deadly Women clip, uh, but this is the official accounting of events. Nettie blew out the kerosene lamp so that the house was pitch dark. She attacked Charlotte, wrestled her to the ground, and held a rag soaked in gasoline over her face. As Charlotte began to lose consciousness, she felt something being splashed on her. When she awoke, she was on fire and Nettie was gone. She began screaming for help and rolling around on the floor, trying to put the fire out. Around 7.15 p.m., a neighbor heard Charlotte's cries for help and saw a bright light in the front window. He ran to the house and found the rocking chair ablaze, so he threw it out the door. Once the light from the fire was out, the house was pitch black, so he ran to the house next door for a lamp. Uh, he got that neighbor. The two of them returned to the Curtis home, where they found Charlotte lying on the dining room floor, clinging to life, her clothes burned off. Meanwhile, parishioners took notice when Nettie arrived to the evening church service a little bit late, looking disheveled. She had scratches on her face and smelled of kerosene. She stayed for only a few minutes before leaving. Moments later, news of the fire reached the church. 
Reverend Curtis, police officers, and doctors all raced to the Curtis home, but nothing could be done to save Charlotte. Her entire body was covered in burns. She lingered in agony for several hours, during which time she gave a sworn statement in front of multiple witnesses, which is how we know what happened. That series of events that I just explained, that was from her statement. Coincidentally, the police officer that was ordered to go arrest Nettie Barnard had been sitting beside her when she showed up to church after the attack on Charlotte Curtis. So he saw her come in late. He saw the scratches. He smelled the kerosene. He already knew. Nettie was taken to the Curtis home, and she was brought before Charlotte on her deathbed. When Charlotte was asked, is this a woman who attacked you? She responded, she is the very woman. Charlotte died just before midnight that night. Nettie Barnard was charged with murder, obviously. Her first trial was held in Lapeer, where she was very quickly convicted. Her lawyer filed an appeal on the grounds that there was absolutely no chance Nettie could get a fair trial in Lapeer, which, I mean, that was a a valid point. She killed the preacher's wife in a very small town. Everyone knew who she was, and everyone thought she was guilty. So she was granted a new trial and a change of venue. This time, she was tried in Charlotte at the Eaton County Courthouse, a.k.a. the home of my Festival of Oddities. The prosecution's case was simple. Nettie had become obsessed with Reverend Curtis, and she wanted him all to herself. She watched Reverend Curtis leave for church, then entered the house, used a gasoline-soaked rag to render Charlotte unconscious, then poured the kerosene from the broken lamp in the house onto Charlotte's body and lit her on fire. Although Charlotte was on her deathbed when she gave her statement and identified Nettie as her attacker, multiple doctors testified that she was of sound mind during that time. Multiple witnesses had seen Nettie in the vicinity of the Curtis home just before the fire, and several people had seen her with scratches on her face when she arrived late to church. Charlotte had told police that she fought as best she could and was pretty sure she'd scratched up Nettie's face. Ezra Barnard spent over $10,000 on lawyers for his wife, which in today's money would be over $250,000. Those very pricey lawyers argued that Charlotte Curtis was senile, which that was true, uh, and that she'd fallen asleep in her rocking chair, had a dream about getting into an argument with Nettie, knocked over the kerosene lamp beside her chair, woke up on fire, and made a connection between her dream and her real-life trauma, even though there wasn't actually one there. Their proof of this claim was that the rocking chair was ablaze when neighbors arrived on scene, which doesn't fit Charlotte's version of events. There would have been no way for Nettie to empty the contents of the kerosene lamp without getting it all over herself as well, which means that when she lit that match, both of them would have gone up into flames. Uh, And then they also said that the scratches on Nettie's face were from her falling in the bushes on her way into the church. But none of those were the reason she was acquitted. The all-male jury found 32-year-old Nettie Barnard not guilty of murder in December of 1881 because they simply could not reconcile that a buxom beauty like Nettie with a handsome, thorough husband would have an affair with a gross old crotchety reverend, thus throwing out her entire motive. So yeah, you heard me right. Nettie Barnard was acquitted. But her troubles were not over. Immediately after the trial, her poor husband Ezra, who'd been cheated on, lied to, made a fool of, and spent his entire fortune to save her from prison, moved out. He'd seen her through the trial so that his son wouldn't grow up without a mother, and now he was done with her. He did not support her financially or emotionally, which of course had people talking that he believed she was guilty, either of the affair, 
the murder, or both. Seven months later, in July of 1882, Nettie Barnard filed for divorce on the grounds of extreme cruelty. She said that Ezra's treatment of her led others to believe that she was guilty, or maybe it was the fact that she was fucking guilty, and he'd spent all of her money. Ah, uh, yeah, lady. Your money, the kids' money, all of it to save your crazy ass from prison. Um, and then she said that because of her reputation, she couldn't find work anywhere to support herself. So he'd really just left her in a lurch. And how dare he write after she cheated on him with their pastor and then killed the pastor's wife? Like, get over it, dude. That article about the divorce filing was the last that I could find about Nettie Barnard. So I'm not sure what happened with the divorce, if she remarried, when and how she died if she killed anyone else, if she and her creepy old boo rode off into the sunset together, I have no idea. But that is the story of Nettie Barnard, murderess of Lapeer. But wait, there's more. This one's a lot shorter. Um, this is actually one that I wrote back when I used to do the True Crime Tuesdays on the Demented Mitten Tours Facebook page. I started to kind of rework it to retell it for the podcast, but then I was just like, why? Why redo it? It's not copying it when you wrote the original, right? So this one's got a little bit of a different flow to it because I wrote it to be read, not to be listened to. Uh, there are zero swear words, but I will try to squeeze at least a couple in so it's not too weird. And here we go. My heart was starving for kindness, and that is the whole story. My husband was distant and aloof. A wife wants to be kissed, petted, made much of. She does not forget after marriage all that she liked before. This was housewife Carrie Joslin's justification for her affair with her husband's farmhand, which ultimately led to murder. William Joslin was a wealthy farmer in Dansville, Michigan in the late 1800s. Dansville brings us right back into the mid-Michigan area. It's just south of Lansing, we go there on the tours when tours are a thing. It's where Seven Gables is. It's where the Burning Bed House is. And it's where the Joslins lived. William's wife, Carrie, was many years his junior and was said to be smart as a whip and exceptionally beautiful. Together, they had two children. As William was often away on business, he decided that Carrie should have some help around the house. Carrie wished to bring in a nanny or a maid, but William insisted that his farmhand a young widower by the name of Isaac Swan could do the work, and that would prove to be a fatal mistake. Oh, wait, I said I was going to fit in some swear words. That would prove to be a fatal fucking mistake. work <laughs> there. Sorry. Isaac Swan had two children of his own that were just a couple of years older than the Joslin children. He was said to be a kind-hearted man who cooked as good as any woman. Together in the Joslin household day after day, the lonely widower and the neglected housewife began to spark rumors around town. Carrie Joslin always maintained that the relationship was not romantic in any way, but Isaac Swan told his closest confidants of a torrid love affair, one so scandalous that when it was retold at his trial, all of the women in the courtroom had to be escorted out for decency's sake. <laughs> On Christmas Day 1904, William Joslin died in his bed after weeks of illness, his cause of death was listed as malignant measles, even though the doctor who had been tending to him suspected from his first visit that Joslin was being poisoned. Even though Joslin told family and friends that visited him that he thought he was being poisoned, 
even though he'd confided in his lawyer months earlier that he thought Carrie was trying to kill him. Those are called red flags, people. Red flags. When William's lawyer heard of his passing, he traveled to Dansville and told police of his client's belief that his wife was having an affair with the farmhand and that she was trying to kill him. Officials exhumed William's body and had a proper autopsy performed, at which point it was determined that he had actually died from arsenic poisoning, not measles. How? Like, can't you see measles? How do you confuse arsenic poisoning with measles? I don't get it. According to prosecutors, Carrie Joslin and Isaac Swan were in love and they conspired to kill William so that they could marry and raise their children together. In early December 1904, Isaac purchased a bottle of arsenic from Lesler's drugstore in Williamston and gave it to Carrie. On December 10th, Carrie slipped the first dose of arsenic into her husband's coffee. He immediately fell ill. Over the next two weeks, she served him arsenic-laced coffee, tea, and lemonade on his sickbed. No one made any attempt to stop her, despite the doctor's suspicions and William's accusations that he was being poisoned. He ultimately expired on Christmas Day. I wrote that. I wrote, I don't say that people expire. I was trying to be fancy, I guess, because I wrote that. He fucking died on Christmas Day. Carrie was arrested shortly after the start of the new year in 1905. She first attempted to claim insanity, but quickly changed her mind and pled guilty to murder. Isaac Swan was arrested in New York after a brief manhunt and pled not guilty at his arraignment. According to Carrie, she was unhappy in her marriage, but was not unfaithful, and had never thought about killing her husband until the day Isaac Swan handed her a bottle of arsenic. She claimed that her husband and his farmhand got into a disagreement, and the next day an angry Isaac handed her a package that he said contained poison— and suggested she use it to dispose of her husband. Isaac's story was, of course, quite different. He claimed that he and Carrie were in love and that he would have done anything for her. So when she asked him to obtain a bottle of arsenic for her, he obliged. He was aware of her intentions, but had no role in the murder other than to pick up a legal substance at the drugstore for his employer's wife at her request. The judge believed neither of them, and sentenced them both to life in prison. The Joslin children were three and five, while the Swan children were six and eight at the time. So all four children became orphans that day. After serving 11 years of a sentence, Isaac Swan was paroled in 1916. He remarried and lived a long, happy life. He died in 1953 at the age of 79. Carrie Joslin's sentence was commuted in 1925 after she had served 20 years. She also remarried, and she passed away in 1932 at the age of 59. And that is the story of Carrie Joslin, the Dansville murderess. All right, one more of my old True Crime Tuesdays, and then I've got another brand new one for you guys. Again, keep in mind, I wrote this to be read, not to be spoken out loud, so it's a little bit dramatic. I apologize. All Dorothy Hoffman ever wanted was to be loved and admired. At the age of 15, she moved to Detroit to work the theater circuit as a spotlight singer. Her first love was a piano player in a local orchestra. When she told him she was pregnant, he told her he already had a wife and children, and then vanished from her life. 
Soon after the birth of her daughter, Dorothy met an orchestra leader that promised to take care of her and her child if she would marry him. So she did. Their marriage fell apart seven months later, and she was once again alone with a baby to raise. She was little more than a child herself. So in 1912, she gave her daughter to a neighbor for adoption and only saw the girl a handful of times over the years. Her own daughter knew her only as a family friend. Dorothy eventually fell in love again and became engaged. The night before the wedding, her fiancé was kidnapped by his family to prevent him from marrying her. And it worked. A few years later, Dorothy married a man she met working in the theater. They were happy until they weren't, and another marriage ended in divorce for Dorothy. And then she met Linus Tromley, a wealthy stock trader. She fell madly in love with him and devoted herself to him unconditionally. So she stayed with him even as he spent her inheritance, ruined her business, and bled her dry. She stayed even though he beat her brutally and routinely. She stayed even though he was unfaithful. Oh, yes. Dorothy Hoffman loved Lyness Tromley to death. I think I was writing this in Keith Morrison's voice, if you want to know the truth. On November 5th, 1931, Lyness borrowed $5 from Dorothy to run an errand. Unbeknownst to him, she followed him to a local hotel where he met a beautiful young girl and disappeared into a room with her. And at last, Dorothy snapped. She drove home and grabbed her revolver, then drove to Linus's brokerage firm where she knew he had a three o'clock meeting. With a pep in his step following his afternoon delight, Linus arrived at his office promptly at 3 p.m. The lobby was full of customers. As he walked toward the boardroom, Dorothy stepped out from the crowd and screamed his name. Like something out of a movie, Linus whirled around just in time for Dorothy to pump him full of lead. She shot him four times as customers screamed and fled. Mortally wounded, Linus stumbled outside to a taxi while Dorothy turned the gun on herself. A police officer stopped her just in time, and she fainted into his arms. It was, this was a whole scene. Also a scene? Dorothy's murder trial. After hearing the sad story about her life and the men who drove her to madness, Dorothy was found not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. And who was there to support her throughout her trial? None other than the daughter she'd given away years ago. The unconditional love she'd spent all that time searching for had always been right there. She just couldn't see it. Was Dorothy Hoffman a victim or a heartless killer? Was justice served or did she get away with murder? It's hard to tell. But that is the story of Dorothy Hoffman, Detroit murderess. All right, three down, one to go. For this last one, we're going to stay in Detroit, but we are traveling all the way back to 1895 for the story of murderess Nellie Pope. Nellie Pope was born Nellie Ferris in Canada in 1853. When she was 24, she married 26-year-old dentist and fellow Canadian Horace Pope. The young couple settled in California then decided to make their way out east with their new baby daughter. It's unclear where they were headed, but they ended up in Detroit under an unfortunate set of circumstances in the early to mid-1880s. As they were passing through the D, their three-month-old daughter died, and a local fraternal order took pity on them and loaned them the money for the baby's burial. So Horace was stuck in Detroit because he had a loan to pay back, 
and Nellie wanted to be near where her daughter was buried anyway. So the couple rented a room in an apartment house located at 88 Washington Avenue. They had another daughter, Bernice, and Horace opened up a dental practice. But Dr. Pope was not just a dentist. He was a swindler who took what he could where he could, beat his wife, and spent very little time at home with his family. He was also prone to screaming fits and profanity-laden outbursts. I mean, same on that last part there. But not in public, dude. If Dr. Pope sucked, Nellie Pope sucked harder. (laughs) Oh my God. I didn't really... (laughs) I didn't think about how that was going to sound when I said it out loud. Like I wrote it down. I must have been tired. (laughs) I should edit that out, but I'm not going to. (sighs) Okay. Nellie Pope was a beast of a woman. And not just because she was over six feet tall and 250 pounds. She was rude and uncouth. She treated her husband and her daughter terribly. One newspaper described her this way. One can believe that nature slept when she was created and that not a redeeming trait of humanity entered into her being. (laughs) Again, I love old newspapers. She didn't cook or clean or do anything really. Her house and her kid were filthy all the time, and she was an opium addict. She had heart problems, which the opium did not help, oddly enough, and she used this as an excuse to do nothing all day, every day. Her heart couldn't take it. Oddly, though, she was only incapacitated when it was convenient for her. At other times, she was fine. There were other things, too like the rumors about the suspicious death of her first husband, which she'd profited financially from, and the fact that even though Dr. Pope often had to borrow money just to feed his family, Nellie somehow managed to pay for the multiple life insurance policies she kept on her husband. Now, we know that's bad news now, today, in true crime world, but here's the crazy thing. Those that knew the Popes knew it too. At one point, Nellie had almost $75,000 in life insurance on Dr. Pope, but many of the insurance companies canceled their policies because they believed that Nellie Pope had designs upon her husband's life, as they put it. Even Dr. Pope knew it. A friend once expressed concern that he thought Nellie was planning to kill the doctor, and Dr. Pope confided in his friend that he thought so too. In early 1894, the Popes met a young man by the name of Billy Brousseau, also from Canada, when he visited Dr. Pope for some dental work. Nellie offered Billy room and board and $15 a week to come care for her as a live-in nurse, because remember, she was a very sick woman. Ah, yes, she was. Billy accepted the job, even though he had no background in the medical field whatsoever. As a result, the only therapy he was able to offer Nellie was vitamin D therapy. If you know what I mean which I just don't get it. Again, Billy was said to be a handsome kid. He was 22. Nellie was not attractive at all. She was an awful woman. Her house was disgusting. She was twice his age. Just gross. But everyone knew about Nellie and Billy's affair. In fact, it was said to be the reason that Dr. Pope was never home and the reason that he and Nellie fought so frequently. But he allowed the affair because he was not physically able to perform his husbandly duties anymore. So he let someone else do it. So here's where we find the Popes in 1894. 
43-year-old Horace and 41-year-old Nellie are destitute and living in squalor. They're in an abusive marriage. Nellie is having an affair with her live-in male nurse that she tells people is her nephew, which is fucking disgusting. Nellie is addicted to opium. Billy is strung out on morphine, which is what keeps him from leaving this truly fucked up situation that he's found himself in, that he's not even being paid for. Not surprisingly, Nellie never paid him that $15 a week that she offered to get him into her cesspool of an apartment in the first place. She just paid him in drugs and gross sex. The doctor is probably addicted to God knows what. He's not seeing patients. He owes debts all over town. He's sleeping in the kitchen while Nellie and Billy sleep in the bedroom. And poor little seven-year-old Bernice Pope is unkempt and unruly, filthy, rude, cusses like a sailor. Just a bad, bad situation. And all the while, Nellie is steadily taking out more and more life insurance on her husband, who she hates. About six months after he moved into the Pope household, Nellie began talking to Billy about killing Dr. Pope. First, they had to get the life insurance in order. Many of the policies had been canceled because insurance agents believed correctly that Nellie was going to kill her husband. Others had lapsed due to missed payments. So Nellie and Billy spent a few months making payments and getting what policies they could reinstated, and they ended up with about $15,000 worth of coverage. By the end of 1884, they were ready to put their murder plot into action. Their first plan was to make it look like an accident. As previously stated, Dr. Pope slept in the kitchen. So one night after he'd fallen asleep, Nellie snuck in and opened the stove dampers. I don't have any idea what that means. I'm not familiar with 1800 stove design, but basically her intention was for toxic gas to build up and kill him. In the same apartment that she, her daughter, and her sex nurse were living in. So wouldn't it that have killed all of them? Nellie told Billy what she'd done, and his conscience wouldn't allow it to happen. So after Nellie fell asleep, Billy snuck into the kitchen and cracked a window. The next morning, Nellie was puzzled as to why Dr. Pope was still alive. So for the next week, every night this went on. Nellie would wait for Dr. Pope to fall asleep, then sneak into the kitchen to fuck with the stove. And then Billy would wait for Nellie to fall asleep and sneak into the kitchen to open the window. That is how ridiculous the shenanigans in this house were. Finally, Nellie gave up on plan A and moved to plan B. Plan B was to shoot Dr. Pope and make it look like suicide. Nellie gave Billy an old revolver with which to do the deed. And every day for three weeks, Billy would walk into a room where Dr. Pope was sitting alone, the revolver tucked into his pants. Then he would lose his nerve and just wind up sitting down and having a conversation with the doctor. Every day for three weeks. And then it was time for plan C. Plan C was perhaps the dumbest of all the plans. Nellie asked Billy to slash Dr. Pope's throat with a straight razor. Like, if he can't let you poison him and he can't shoot him from across a room, how's he going to go up and grab him and slit his throat? That is so up close and personal. Get real, lady. So obviously, that plan didn't go anywhere. And it was on to plan D, which was the most complex of all the plans. Nellie wanted Billy to kill Dr. Pope with a hatchet and claim self-defense. They would tell police that Billy walked in on Dr. Pope beating his wife, tried to break it up, Dr. Pope shot at him, so Billy went after him with a hatchet. 
In the early morning hours of February 2nd, 1895, it was time to put their fourth and final plan into motion. At about 3 a.m., Nellie called out for her husband from the bedroom and said she was having problems with her heart and needed medication. He gave her something, probably fucking opium, and then sat down in the rocking chair beside her bed to watch over her. He quickly fell back to sleep, at which point Billy entered the room, picked up the hatchet, and struck him. The first blow was almost definitely fatal, but Nellie wanted to be sure, so she said, hit him again. Billy struck Dr. Pope at least a dozen times with the hatchet, leaving his skull in shards, which is a disgusting visual. Then he took the doctor's gun and fired it randomly into one of the walls. He placed the gun at the doctor's feet, and then he, Nellie, and little Bernice, who was awake this entire fucking time, sat with the doctor's mutilated body for hours. Around 6 a.m., Billy ran out into the street, frantic like a man who just had to kill a man in self-defense. He found a police officer, and he took him back to the apartment. Not surprisingly, authorities saw right through the stage crime scene. They arrested 23-year-old William Billy Brousseau for murder, took 42-year-old Nellie, who was being very dramatic and literally pretended to be having a heart attack every time they tried to question her, to the hospital. They had her treated and evaluated, then arrested her, and they took 8-year-old Bernice in for questioning. It was clear to authorities that the girl had been brainwashed, <clears throat> brainwashed, brainwashed, yeah, I guess brainwashed too, brainwashed and coached by her mother. So they took her into whatever sort of protective custody existed in the 1800s. The trials for Billy Brousseau and Nellie Pope were wild. Hundreds of people, mostly women, attended the proceedings. Billy confessed to everything and even testified against Nellie. He said he was under her spell and in a trance the whole time he lived in the Pope home. Nobody. You were high. Really, all it is. Nellie denied everything and continued to play up her heart condition. Every time the heat was on her, she would feign chest pain or faint. Just so dramatic. In the end, they were both found guilty of murder. Billy was sentenced to 25 years in prison, while Nellie was sentenced to life at hard labor. Billy died in 1916 at the age of 44, but not before giving a deathbed confession exonerating Nellie Pope. On New Year's Day, 1917, 64-year-old Nellie Pope was paroled. She was sent to the Salvation Army Rescue Home in Detroit, where she lived and worked sewing clothes for children. In 1928, she was granted a full pardon. Why? I have no idea, but she was. She died a year later in 1929 at the age of 75. She never reunited with Bernice. And that is the story of Nellie Pope, Detroit's original murderess. And that's it. Four of them. What do we do? The, the murderess of Lapeer, the murderess of Dansville, and two Detroit murderesses? Pretty solid. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My sources for this episode were literally just old newspapers from the 1800s. So newspaper.com gets all the credit for this one. Now, it's time for me to answer a listener question. We are in the final days of September here, so shit's getting serious. It is really almost Halloween now. So I'm going to answer these questions sent in by Jared Smelker. 
His first question was, what is your favorite aspect about Halloween now and as a kid? So my favorite thing about Halloween now is decorations. I love them. I love for my house to look spooky and creepy and weird, which contrary to popular belief, it does not look that way all year long. I have a few things here and there kind of spread out throughout the house, but it's not like you walk in and you're at the Adams family mansion. It's uh, first of all, not a mansion. Second of all, it's very light and cheery and kind of, you know, we live in a, an old Victorian, so it's just, yeah. But at Halloween, it's amazing and I love it. And I wish I could leave that stuff up all year long, but my family would kill me. When I was a kid, my favorite thing about Halloween was trick-or-treating, but not me trick-or-treating. I got over that pretty quickly. I liked passing out candy. I liked staying home, putting on a scary movie, lighting cinnamon candles, and passing out candy and seeing everybody's costumes. That was my favorite thing to do, which I'm a little sad because that was, you know, very common when I was a kid and in my neighborhood, but none of the houses that I've lived in as an adult, well, I guess when my kids were very little, our house that we lived in there, trick-or-treating was a thing. But most of the houses that I've lived in since moving out to the Grand Ledge area, just, I mean, no, this, we get no trick-or-treaters and it makes me a little sad. Jared's second question, uh, did you have a favorite costume? I loved all of my costumes because my grandma always made my costumes and I was a Care Bear and I was Rainbow Bright and I was all these cutesy 80s things. But my favorite by far was my eighth grade Halloween costume. I finally got to be something like gross and creepy and uh, I was a bloody prom queen, like a zombie prom queen. So I got this like pink taffeta dress at Goodwill and put fake blood on that. My dad, you know, was an artist, so he did my makeup and hair was all teased and big and it was just, it was my favorite. I'll have to post a picture of that one on the So Dead website. And then Jared's last question, which really doesn't need answering, but I'll answer it anyway. Do you think a year-round Halloween, did I say, <laughs> I said Halloween. I'm just going to call it that now. I'm sorry, you guys. I'm tired. Do you think a year-round Halloween store would be awesome? Absolutely. So there's what, Bronner's up in Frankenmuth, that year-round Christmas store, which I've never been inside. That's not true. I went once in middle school, but I don't remember it very well. I've never been inside as an adult, and we've gone to Frankenmuth a few times. We just always are done, and we skip that by the end. So if we can have year-round Christmas store, I think we can absolutely have a year-round Halloween store. So thank you, Jared, for sending that in. If you guys have a question that you want answered on the podcast, it can be about murder stuff or it can be just about life. Um, yeah, send it to me. I'll answer it. Before I go today, I want to mention a couple things because one of my favorite things about living this life is all of the really cool people I get to meet. And I love watching and supporting the big things that they're doing. It just makes me so happy to see people like living their best lives and making their dreams come true. And I've got a couple friends that have done a couple really cool things recently. Um, one is my good friend Tisha, who owns a store called Thrift Witch. 
It has been in Rio town for the past couple of years, and it recently relocated to a beautiful space in Old Town Lansing. If you knew where Lambsgate Furniture was, Furniture? Antiques. Lambsgate Antiques was. It's in that space, so it's on Turner, right near the Old Town Sir Pizza, but it's so gorgeous. It's a great store, and she she sells a lot of creepy things. It's thrift. It's crafters. So if you've been to a Festival of Oddities, a lot of the people that come and, and vend at Festival of Oddities sell items in Tisha's shop. So it's just really cool, creepy, weird, offbeat. We've got like vintage 80s clothes, um, creepy stuff, cool stuff. I love it. And I'm so proud of her. And it's such a great space. And I know she's going to do great things there. So I just wanted to, those of you in the Lansing area, Thrift Witch is an old town now. Check out their Facebook page for hours. Go check them out. It's amazing. The other is something we've been talking about on the podcast for a very long time. And it's finally happened. It'll be a, a few days out, a week out now by the time you guys hear this. But... um Rod Sadler, true crime author Rod Sadler, he was on an early episode of So Dead. His new book just dropped. It's called Killing Women, and it is about East Lansing serial killer Don Jean Miller, who we talked about in episode one of So Dead. And I haven't gotten too far into it yet because I'm doing 10 kajillion things. But as soon as I got the notification that it had been dropped into my Kindle, I read through like the first chapter and a half, and it's enthralling. It's amazing. It's so interesting. It's so well-written. All of Rod's work is really well-written. And so I would just recommend that you go pick up that book. You can get it on Kindle. You can get, I think you can get the hardcover now. Maybe it's paperback. I'm not sure, but um, I know that you can get an e-version of it, but it's called Killing Women. So Thrift Witch, go shop there. Killing Women, buy it and read it. Support local, support small business, support people doing good things. Yeah. And as always, thank you guys so much for joining me today. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube at So Dead Podcast. Please check out the Patreon page for ways to support the show financially. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash So Dead Podcast. And be sure to visit SoDeadPodcast.com for all your SoDead merch. As always, you can email me your feedback and story ideas to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. A new episode is coming your way in a couple of weeks. If you need something to listen to between now and then, be sure to check out The Serial Killer Chronicles if you haven't yet. That is my first SoDead mini-series. Or join the Patreon party And as a $5 and up patron, you can unlock all of the bonus episodes. And the September bonus episode is actually another murderess. Not a Michigan murderess. Uh, This one was Arizona, but it's a crazy story. It's a really good one. As well as all of the other bonus episodes that you never knew existed. So stay safe, stay sane, and until next time, keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks.